following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Uh, please turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Uh, we are continuing today uh, in our series. It's called Free Indeed. And uh, if you haven't been with us and you're not sure what's going on, we're just working verse by verse through the book of Galatians. Uh, the Apostle Paul, he preached the gospel and he planted churches in the Galatian region. Uh, and, then, and then sometime later, a group of legalists known as the Judaizers, they came behind him and started teaching that people needed to believe in Jesus, uh, but they also needed to observe at least parts of the Old Testament law to be saved. And so Paul wrote this fiery letter to combat this false teaching. And uh, the first three chapters, which we've worked through, they were devoted to him calling out this heresy and defending the true and pure gospel. Towards the end of chapter 3 and moving into chapter 4, there is a shift towards more application woven into the explanation that he's giving. And so we're going to notice this subtle shift as we're reading today. And so today we're we're looking at chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 20 together. And uh, there's there's a continuation here, you're going to notice, of the theme that we began to unpack last week. It's about spiritual maturity and and freedom that the gospel provides and that the law never could. And so Paul's continuing in that flow of thought. We kind of broke into it at the end of chapter three last week. We'll pick it up today, okay? So I hope you're at Galatians four. As I said, we're reading verses one through 20. Here we go. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. 
But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I wish I could, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Praise God for his word. Not particularly cheery, uh, but <laughs> packed full of, of truth that uh, is going to help us today. Amen. So as I said, uh, we're working verse by verse. So let's go back to the beginning and uh, let's look at verses one through three together. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. Okay? But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Last week, we, we read Paul's use of two metaphors to describe the purpose of the law and its purpose in fulfilling the promise of God to Abraham that, that through his seed, uh, that all of the world would be blessed. And we, we took time and labored much over the reality that Paul says this reference to a seed is, is not all of the descendants of Abraham in, this, in that particular case, but it's talking about Christ, this particular seed that was going to come and cause blessing for the whole world, okay? So in, in, in those two analogies, uh, metaphors, he wrote that those under the law were in its custody, was one metaphor, and that the law served as a tutor to point them to their need for a savior, okay? And so, we're, we're, it, it, you know, the Bible's broken into chapters and verses, but it wasn't originally that way. You, we re- realize this. This was a letter, and it would have just flowed like a letter. And so, maybe it would be more apparent how connected this flow of thought is. Um, sometimes the breaks make it make kind of artificial disconnections for us. So along the same vein here, he uses the idea of guardians and managers. So it was custody and tutor. Now he's talking about guardians and managers. And what we may not know that would help us understand the metaphor here, in, in Rome at that time, in families that were affluent enough to have servants, a child would often be under the care and the tutelage of a trusted servant until the time that their father determined they were mature enough to receive the toga virilis. I mentioned that last week. And, and so there was, in, in Rome, there was, there was a toga that signified a, a, a person was a child. And then there was this ceremony and there was this receiving of what was called the toga virilis. And once you received that, it meant now you are a Roman citizen. You've moved from childhood to adulthood. Oftentimes in that ceremony, young boys would hand over a, a, a cherished toy, a, a ball or something of that effect. Young girls would hand over a doll or some other cherished toy to signify that I realize what's happening here. I'm, I'm being called to mature. I'm being called to, to grow up and to take this next step in that process. And so uh, th- because that was the case, th- th- they were in subjection to a servant they would one day command. And that's his point here. Even though this child is actually an heir and would one day have authority in the house, okay? That's where they were at. Until the appointed time, they were in subjection to someone that they eventually would have authority over. And this is the metaphor he's using to help us understand what it's like to be under the law as opposed to being under grace through the gospel. Okay? So, he says, this is what it was like when the people of God were under the law. And, and when he talks here about the elemental things of this world, it's, that's thought by many, and, and it, it's the thing that makes most sense to me. So, you know, I'm not totally sure, but 
based on the flow of thought and what Paul's trying to unpack here, it's thought by many to be a reference to what are the elemental things? What's he talking about? That it's this tendency for us to operate on a merit-based system. That's the elemental like status, modus operandi, if you will, of the, the world, okay? Um, what does that mean? What do I mean by that? Well, it's, it's the idea that you, you get what you deserve. That you do good and you receive reward. You do bad and you receive punishment. The, the particular language that he uses here, it, it almost translates like this. It's kind of like saying that the elemental things, it's almost like saying you, you, were, you were held up under or subject to like the ABCs of reality. It's, it almost has that idea. The, 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 the beginning, the, the baseline, the ABCs, if you will. And, and, and here's the thing, those ABCs of reality, that idea that when you do good, you receive good. When you do bad, you receive bad. They, they do hold true at one level, right? The, the truth of this is pretty clear when we consider how widespread ideas like karma are or ideas like uh, what goes around comes around. Who's ever heard that before, right? Most people to some degree, kind of regardless of time or culture, they, they have some idea of that principle. What goes around comes around. You're going to kind of get what you give. And, and here's the thing. The Bible even talks about sowing and reaping. And so it's, it's not that this principle is false altogether. It, it's that the gospel shows one specific place that it doesn't apply. And it's very important. It's very hard for us to not apply this principle that is true everywhere else to this one specific place, but it, this distinction is of paramount importance because this one place it doesn't apply is in our relationship to God. If the pure gospel is true, I think it is, but if it is, then when it comes to our relationship with God, we get exactly opposite of what we deserve because the Bible teaches the wages of sin is death it teaches that all have sinned and so all should receive eternal death as their rightly earned wage. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is one place where this elemental principle does not apply and it's in how we approach God. It's in our relationship to God. And when God's people were under the custody of the law, when it was still their guardian, they were, they were still stuck in that elementary paradigm. But, there's a big but here as he transfers into verses four and five. It's important. So let's read that, verse, starting in verse four. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And this is, this phrase, when the fullness of time came, it's incredibly important for us to consider. And if you were here during Advent, you, you'll probably remember, we already in the discussion, uh, you know, we were, we were tracing angelic announcements through Advent. And in, in one of Luke's accounts, there's this mention of Caesar Augustus. And so we, we got into this idea a little bit already pretty recently, but it's, it's so important for us to consider and to, to really 
kind of cement this idea in our minds as we think about the, the coming of Christ the first time, it's, it's worth mentioning again. And so when he, when he talks about the fullness of time coming, at the, at the simplest level, that means it's the time God appointed. It's the time God decided was right. Okay, so that's at the simplest level, but there's a lot of encouragement in considering the brilliance of God when we look at the time he chose to send Jesus on the scene, born of a woman, born under the law. Because in the time right before Jesus came on the scene, the Roman Empire was totally just riddled with the, the, the drama of civil wars. There was not continuity between the, the areas and sections of the empire. Travel was very difficult and dangerous. But then there was this era of time and Caesar Augustus coming into power, kind of consolidating, becoming really the, the first Caesar that was seen as an emperor and, and a, a uniter of the Roman Empire. There was this time that's commonly referred to as the Pax Romana. And really that translates as Roman peace. So there's this period of time just before Jesus comes on the scene and for several, several decades after Jesus walked the earth where the Roman Empire enjoyed a period of, of relative peace and continuity, okay? And so why does that matter? Well, have any of you ever heard the phrase, all roads lead to Rome, okay? Well, what is that? What does that mean? That's, that's because literally at this time, right? Civiliz as far as civilization is concerned and, and world population is concerned, basically it seemed to them that anywhere you wanted to go, any, anywhere, and, and what happened before that was, it wasn't before the Romans even got their thing going, the Greeks came in and did a bunch of conquering, which meant the Greek language was now spread around. So now more people could talk to each other than could talk to each other before. And then come in the Romans and they build this empire that stretches out. It's, it's at, to that time, the biggest area, the most people under the rule of one government ever. And you know, us being Americans, we're like, ooh, I don't like any of that. Tyrants and stuff, that's bad. I get it, but, but we're talking about the purposes of God here and how though you know, Caesar Augustus and, and everybody that came after him, you know, they, they thought they were um, gonna be perpetuating the glory of Rome in perpetuity and eventually Rome was gonna be you know, the conquering power of the world forever. You know, that's not what happened. Are you, are you a Roman citizen today? You are not. Are you hailing a Caesar today? You are not, but we just sang a bunch of worship songs to Jesus, didn't we? Yeah, and so what God did in bringing Jesus at that time, there was so many, and I'm, I'm only touching the surface of all the brilliant strategic reasons why God brought Jesus when he did, because the, the scene was primed for the message of the gospel to be able to go forth and actually spread, and that's exactly what happened. That's why Paul was able to be in places like the Galatian region, planting churches in Ephesus and Corinth and all these other places, all right? Amen, Philippi, everywhere he went. And uh, everyone else that was also carrying the message of the gospel. Uh, the, the, it was, the time was, was prime for, for so many reasons. So it's not just that God decided, though that's the most important thing. Here, why am I telling you all that? I want you to be encouraged at the brilliance of your God. I want you to be encouraged at how strategic he is. And the hope is you can apply that principle to 
the waiting we find ourselves in now. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm, you know, in my prideful foolishness, I'm like, hey, Lord, what's the deal? What are we waiting on? (laughs) As far as this second coming of Christ thing, right? Because things are wild. Amen, right? So what's, well, here's the thing, man. There's a, there was a fullness of time when Jesus came the first time. There's gonna be a fullness of time the second time and the father knows. And we, we probably won't get it. We won't be able to see it from our little vantage point, but there's a, there's a time and there's <laughs> innumerable reasons why he will do it when he does it. And it'll be for his glory and for the good of those who love him. For that, you can be sure. Amen? <clears throat> And so what did he do at the exact right time? Sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And so what we see here is something that theologically is referred to as the hypostatic union. It's real important that we understand that Jesus is not 50% human, 50% God. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. And I know every one of us have circuits starting to spark in our heads as we try to understand what that means. Amen, (laughs) right? Every time that happens, we can choose to doubt or worship. We'll be there often if we're going to spend any time thinking about an infinite God, uh, this God, right? We're going to be overwhelmed oftentimes. We're not going to be able to keep up. Uh, That's a chance where I get to lift my hands and surrender again. But he sent his divine son. So he's divine, which means he has the power to redeem us. But he also sent him to be born of a woman and born under the law. Why? Why does that matter? so that he can stand in and pay the price to redeem us. He couldn't just be God because he needed to stand. Somebody had to pay the price for all the sins that had been committed and were going to be committed. Somebody had to be able to be a representative. And mankind was the offender here. Which is why Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law. The difference between him and us is though he was born under the law, he never broke it, as all of us have. Which is what allowed him to be the spotless, sinless sacrifice that we needed. The only chance we were going to have it, redemption. Do you know what redemption means? It means to buy for a price, to release, to set free, to pay a price to do it. When the Bible talks of redemption, that's what it means. And Jesus did pay a great price. For what? So, that we, so what could happen that we might receive the adoption as sons? If someone was legally adopted, and again, I'm I'm telling you these customs because a little of this can be lost on us, not maybe knowing what Paul's referencing in the metaphors, okay? And so if someone was legally adopted by a Roman family, they had all of the same rights and privileges of a naturally born child. There was no distinction. That's deep. So if Paul's willing to use that metaphor to describe what happens with our adoption, okay, who's the one naturally born son in this scenario? The one begotten of God, right? That's Jesus. And he makes it so that we can be adopted in as he was. And so what does that mean for us relationally with the Father? What does that mean in terms of the blessings unlocked for us? The things that that belong to the divine one, the holy one of God. That we're adopted and brought in to that level of blessing, to that level of freedom, to the, the power that comes with that. 
Jesus took all the punishment of the law. The punishment that the law demanded we should get so that we could receive all the blessing of righteousness that only he should get. Let me say that again because it's real important. Jesus took all the punishment the law demanded we should get so that we could receive all the blessings of righteousness that only he should get. You can't think about that too much, friends. You can't rejoice in that too much. Pastor Vince, we preach the gospel here every week, man. This just seems like the gospel. Oh, I know. I know. Martin Luther said, we, man, we, we don't just need to hear the gospel once. We need to beat into our heads. Because we, like the Galatians, struggle with the temptation to be pulled back into those weak elemental principles. We are often tempted to be pulled back. And, and to the degree, if you're sitting there in, in, a, in a mental argument with me saying, oh no, not me, I've got, I've got this gospel down all the way. I operate in it fully all the time and I'm never tempted to operate in anything other than full gospel faith. Nope. <laughs> Maybe part of what today will be will be a dose of humility for you. As Paul is writing to, to try to Encourage the Galatians to shake themselves. Maybe you'll find yourself shook today for your good. That brings us to verses six and seven. Look, look at those again. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Here we see the Trinitarian nature of God and the distinct roles that each co-equal person plays in the glorious work of salvation. The Father sends the Son to redeem us. The Son lives, dies, and rises to redeem us. And the Holy Spirit then fills us, sealing our position as God's children that we may, with bold joy, call Him our Father. This word Abba, it's an Aramaic term and, and it's akin. It, it translated straight from Aramaic to the Greek speakers. They didn't change it. And it's, it's a term akin to the word Papa. It's, what, and what does that convey? Friends, it conveys this at least. This, it's not just some sterile or distant relationship that we're being invited into here. We are invited into an intimacy with God that far exceeds what even the best relationships between human fathers and their children looks like. And I realize that this metaphor, though it's meant to, to bring us to a place of, of understanding, man, we, we can come to God and call out Abba, and it's except the God of the universe, the king over, the, the cosmic judge of all the cosmos, we can come to him and declare Abba. Father. And so it's, it's meant to show us this isn't some, some sterile thing. It's, it's meant to show us that though God is our king and creator, that, that what he desires with us is this intimate, close relationship. But this, this metaphor can also work against us sometimes because of the difficulty for many of us of our human father example. 
And so friends, if I can just encourage you that if that's where your mind goes, when you, when you hear these comparisons throughout the scripture, when you hear these invitations throughout the scripture to come to God as a good and perfect father, if, if there's interference that happens for you in being able to rejoice in that to the degree that you understand it, if, if, it, if, it, if you're tripped up because you, you, you can't separate that metaphor from the picture of your own Father, if there's failings there and hurt and pain points, if I can just encourage you, dear friends, what he's trying to, with this metaphor, he's trying to show us, imagine the most perfect relationship a father and a child could have. This far exceeds that. And the the pain and and the struggle that you, you may have experienced as a result of the failings of earthly fathers, it's the, the metaphor is not meant to point us to that side of this. It's meant to point us to this wonderful truth, that a God as big and powerful and mighty as our God, a God that can create all things, that what he desires with us is the kind of relationship where we could come to him and say, Abba, and not feel out of place. It's an amazing thing. And just so you know, I'm, I'm not trying to, to preach at you in theory. I've got earthly father stuff that I have to work through too, okay? So it's not like I read about that someone might struggle with this. You know what I mean? Like, I get it, okay? But, but there's, there's a, a helpful compartmentalization that has to happen. The point of the metaphor here is to point us to the wonder and the good side of the reality that God invites us to relate to him as father, Okay? I know there's a lot that can make that complicated on the other side. Um, I would encourage you to just, just submit that to the Lord and ask him to, to clear that out of the way. What he's trying to do here is invite you close. He wants to show you the, the perfect example of what this looks like. And, and he's the only one that's gonna do that because the best earthly fathers jumble it up and mess it up. Amen. So what does this mean? Verse seven, therefore... You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. It's interesting. Verse seven has a distinct echo of perhaps the most famous, and for good reason, parable that Jesus ever taught. In this declaration of this, this, this implication that we see in verse seven, there's, there's an echo of the story often referred to as the prodigal son. If you remember the prodigal son, the story goes that there's, there's a son who comes to his father and basically says, I want my inheritance. I want it now. I don't want to wait until you pass away. I want what's mine now. And the father gives that to him. And the son goes off to a far land, parties the money away, uh, and once the money's gone, the friends are gone, and the Bible has this, as Jesus tells this story, there's this incredibly powerful phrase he uses to describe the turning point. It's that that prodigal son comes to his senses. He finds himself hired to feed pigs, so hungry, so desperate, he's, he's eating the same food as the pigs, trying to survive. This is what he's been reduced to as a result of running from his father. And he says he comes to his senses and he, he has this idea. He remembers back 
home. Probably seems like a distant memory at this point, but he, rem- he remembers that the servants in his father's house aren't laying in a pig pen eating the food that the pigs are eating. The servants in his father's house are in far better shape than he finds himself today. And so he reasons, I, I know, I know with what I've done, there's no way I could ever be received again as a son, but I could go and I could plead with my father for mercy to just, just be treated as one of his servants. And so he heads home. The Bible records that the father, instead of seeing his son far off and, and crossing his arms and furrowing his brow and waiting for him to come and grovel, the father notices his son The implication there being that he had been watching for his son. He's paying attention. He's looking down the road in hope and faith that his son would return. The Bible says, as soon as the silhouette of his son is visible, that father runs to him, embraces him, kisses him, puts a ring on his finger and a coat on his back. The son... He doesn't even get a chance to do the whole father. I only deserve to be a servant in your house speech. He doesn't even get it out because the father showers upon him mercy and love and forgiveness and draws him into the house. Kills a calf to have a party to celebrate his son who was dead and is now alive. And here's the key. Here's part of what this echoes and what it should bring us to to understand that, that son, he thought he only deserved to be a slave in his father's house after what he had done. And that same mentality, that same condemnation, and that same inability to possibly conceive of a God so gracious and merciful as is described in that parable. Because friends, we all are that son And that father is our father. And so for many of us, we we get pulled back into the weak and elemental things. We know, many of us, how much we've done, how severe the infractions are, the sins of thought and word and deed. And we can... We can get into the same mentality. We can get into the same place of condemnation, not possibly being able to imagine that God would welcome us again as his child. Not understanding that as far as he's concerned, that status never changed. His love for you never changed. His desire for close, connected relationship with you never changed. It never did. Praise God (laughs) that that's true. He continues in verses eight through 11, However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back? How is it that you turn back to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months, seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. We can hear in these verses quite clearly, the agonizing perplexity this creates in Paul as he thinks about these people that he loves. He thinks about them willingly trading the freedom and the maturity of being sons and daughters 
to go back to the same status as slaves. And you, you, hear, you hear the agony in it. You hear the, the, the genuine confusion for Paul in the question. He says, how is it? How is it? What does he mean? How could, how could this possibly be? When you've tasted and seen what it's like. And you've seen the truth of God revealed. How could this even entice you? At least part of the answer to how this happens is that the slavery of legalism, it often camouflages itself as even greater maturity than sonship. It's not that most people are, have, they're not taking a clear-eyed look at the two options and saying, oh yes, legalism and slavery is better. That's, that's not how deception works. That's not how the forces of darkness do their thing. Oh no. Satan is the father of lies. Those who promote legalism often appear holier, more disciplined, and more mature to the undiscerning eye than those who are walking in the freedom and the grace and the sonship of Christ and his gospel. One of the most common ways that this happens, we see Paul begin to address it, and we, we touched this pretty hard actually last week. So in chapter 3, verse 28, uh, we, we saw that it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Here's what was happening this group of Judaizers, they presented themselves, as legalists often do, as holier or better than others because of their observances of certain traditions. Like, yeah, you know, the, 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 the kind of bench warmer Christians, yeah, you know, they're, they get this stuff about Jesus, but, but first string, the super Christians, they're doing this other stuff. Right? And here's the thing. This deception, it plays on oftentimes what is an earnest desire because those who have an earnest desire to serve God faithfully, that earnest desire can be played upon. And it often leads to people being duped by various groups who present themselves as better or holier than the rest. Here's the truth, friends. It's sad. It's a sad truth. A very effective way to gather a following is to preach that everyone else is doing it wrong and that your special elite group are the only ones doing it right. Why does that work? Well, multiple things, but at one level, at least, it appeals to our baser instincts of tribalism and sectarianism. Do you know that about yourself? As a human, you have a base instinct and tendency to want to belong to a group. There's safety in that. Some of that is even God-ordained. We weren't meant to do this thing alone. There's no such thing as solo Lone Ranger Christians. All right? What? Yeah. True story. But it's, it's sometimes hard for us to, I mean, the, the body of Christ is big, and it's like, man, well, that, that's so big, it doesn't, maybe it doesn't feel like I'm, I'm a, a part of something real special, but if there's this little group of like, Elite special forces Christians. Yeah, I want to I be on that team. One's really doing it, right? 
That's, that's what was happening here. And it's, it wasn't just in the first century, okay? The gospel can free us from those instincts to live out the truth in chapter three, verse 28, right? Because in chapter three, verse 28, we're told that those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ are all one in him. We're all one in him to be brought into the family of God, the body of Christ. It's an incredible, beautiful privilege. And we can live as one in supernatural unity for the glory of God and for the fulfilling of his purposes. People ask me about this often, and this, this is part of why we here at Love City Church would consider ourselves non or interdenominational. Why do I say that? Because we believe God is working in and through many different types of churches who are faithfully focused on loving God and loving people and making disciples. We know for certain we're not the only ones doing it right. And we know for certain we have imperfect flaws. If God couldn't use imperfect churches, there's none to use, okay? Amen. Well, Pastor Vince, you're wrong. I I went to a perfect church once. You ruined it when you got there then. Say amen. It's okay. Amen. That's true, Pastor. You're right. That's a good one right there. That was, you, could have, you could have banged a tambourine on that one. Amen. We know we're not the only ones doing it right. And, and there's, we, we're totally dependent on God's grace for whatever we are doing right. We want to celebrate and partner with as many fellow Christ followers as possible to make much of Jesus and to point people to him. We want to be known more for what we're about than what we're against. And that's one of the key ways you can spot somebody that's getting into this kind of this, this legalist tribalism deal. If, if it's a lot more apparent what they're against, that's what's being put in the front all the time as opposed to what they're for. And if what they're for is not the gospel of Jesus, the fame and glory of Jesus, then there's a problem. We want to be friends with and we want to work with all different denominational or non-denominational churches who are truly about the Father's business and not focused on building their own brand, okay? Let me just help you with something. Maybe you have a marketing background. Maybe you've been around Love City for a while, and maybe you've had this thought, man, Love City really could use some marketing help. Like, they don't really have a brand. What is Love City's brand? They're not doing very good on the marketing thing. Let me help you with something. We don't have a brand. Jesus Christ and his gospel is our brand. We have no need. This is not a business. We're not selling dish soap here, okay? I know if you're Palmolive, you need to distinguish yourself from joy somehow, right? Ours is softer or it's not gonna melt your hands better than this one or whatever, or it cleans the dishes better, like whatever your thing is, right? You gotta distinguish yourself from the others in the competitive marketplace. This is not a competitive marketplace. This is the church of Jesus Christ. And we're called to be one, to be unified in every possible way that we can because that's part of how we declare to the world there's something supernatural happening here. By not falling into those baser tribalistic instincts where we're arguing and bickering with each other over stuff that doesn't even matter. That's the the elemental things that you get pulled back into 
when you're not focused on eternal things. We're not doing that. We don't have a brand. I'm for sure not the brand. Trust and believe in that. We don't have one. Our brand is Christ and his gospel. And we want to, I'm hoping that's the brand of a bunch of other faithful churches and we want to be friends with them. It is. There's many who get that. And I understand, man. Well, well, Pastor Vince, there's business principles and stuff. It can be helpful. Yeah, there are some things that can translate, but this is, the church is not a business. There's a lot of things that need to be different. Okay? We don't need a brand. Jesus is the brand. His gospel is the brand. We just want to faithfully get that good news to as many people as possible and then teach them what it means to live that out in their life. Amen. Hallelujah. Verse 10 can be perplexing. You observe days and months and seasons and years. Does verse 10 mean calendars are sinful? Because it kind of seems like it. (laughs) Am I not supposed to know what day it is? Like, do I just do hash marks on a tree outside? Like, what, is that even bad? What do I do? I can't observe days and months and seasons and years. That's, that's not his point. His point is that as a part of observance of Old Testament law, um, these guys, these Judaizers were, were pushing these Gentile Christians to observe the festivals and the holy days. And, and here's the thing. It's not, it does not, this does not even mean that observing holidays and such is sinful. Okay. What's, what's the issue? It's, it's not sinful as long as we don't think those observances are somehow making us more holy or closer to God than someone who may choose not to, and vice versa. Amen. That's really the, the heart of the thing there. The whole problem here is, how do we view our relationship to God? Are we looking at through the view of these elemental things where, where what I do, my performance is going to determine whether or not I observe the holidays correctly, whether or not I do the, the rituals and the traditions, that's going to determine my proximity, my relational connection to God. That's the whole thing he's coming against. No, those are weak, worthless, elemental things. Yeah, yeah, much of life works that way, but it, that can't be translated over to this one most important thing. How it is you relate to God and how he relates to you. It's not on our merit. It's not on our observance. It's on Christ's merit. It's on his faithful observance. It's on his sacrifice, our ability to trust him. And even that is a gift of grace. Amen. Verses 12 through 14. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also become as you are. You've done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my body condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. This is, a, this is one of those places where um, a lot of times those in the body of Christ, we, we're, we, some, ooh, we are really good missing the point sometimes. And so there's been so much ink spilled over trying to figure out what this physical illness is that Paul is talking about here. In in a verse or two, when he says, I can testify that you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. There's people that are saying, oh, that means this was some kind of eye issue that Paul was having. Uh, Some have even um, theorized that it was uh, depression. Some have thought this correlates to uh, him talking about uh, the thorn in the flesh, which Christ said his grace was sufficient for. But here's the thing. If, if, if what was important was for us to know the specifics, so some have said they think it's malaria because the place that he had just come from was a lowland area and it was wet and marshy and known for 
having you know, people be getting sick with malaria. And so now this, this place where he's in the Galatian region, it's higher and it's drier. And so maybe he went there to recover. And it's like, that's, none of that even matters, okay? Why are you telling me that? Because I know many of you are gonna go home and just get into some deep study going back over, because I know you guys do that, right? Like I preach and kind of touch the surface and you guys just go nuts all week, really digging into the scriptures, right? I mean, so I just want you, when you encounter commentaries and stuff where people are arguing about what this illness was, just ignore it. It doesn't matter. Here's the point, okay? This, these couple verses are simultaneously a crushing blow to the prosperity gospel and a great encouragement to us in the midst of whatever trials we may be facing. What do I mean by that? He says, it is because of my bodily illness that I preach the gospel to you. So what does that mean? That means when, when there are those that, that will run around and teach that it is always God's will for you to be healthy and never to be sick. And that if you are sick, it's a lack of faith. What that, what, so what, how we'd have to translate that into this story and what Paul's saying is because Paul had a lack of faith, he was sick. That's the only way that could be possible. And... Um, I just wonder how the Galatians would feel about that because it was because Paul had a bodily illness and because of how God actually deals with trial and difficulty and things like sickness in our life. Does God heal? Absolutely he does. does he, can we ask for healing? Absolutely we can. In faith? Yes, absolutely. God made us and can heal us. Sometimes he does that. Sometimes it's through the very difficulty that we are tempted to be shook by that he's orchestrating things that wouldn't have happened another way. Paul ends up in front of these Galatian Christians, they weren't Christians, in front of these pagans to be able to share with them the gospel because he was so sick, he had to stop. Okay, I, I could just rail on that for a whole bunch more. I think you get the point, all right? Clearly, that, we all right. And so that should also translate to being a great encouragement to us. What are you going through right now that you're struggling to understand why God's allowing it, what God's doing with it? You're tempted to, to doubt his good intentions towards you. Friends, there's no way as Paul first started to be struck with blindness or malaria or depression or whatever it was, it doesn't matter, but it was bad enough that, it, that he had to stop and be taken care of by these people. When the, when the symptoms of whatever that was first started to be on set, there was no way he could have known. It was for that very reason these people were going to be able to have a shot at hearing the gospel of life. I'm sure the Galatians are thankful Paul did not believe the prosperity gospel. Amen. Verses 15 through 18. <clears throat> Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, not only when I'm present with you. <clears throat> I want to be super transparent with you right here. The, <clears throat> the prevalence of, the prevalence of false teachers and, and spiritual abuse and how often that stuff is in the headlines, it makes this feel very hard to unpack without sounding like one of them. And I just want to say that. Do you understand what I mean? Because there, 
are people, there are wolves in shepherd's clothing that would use things like this to manipulate and control people. But that's not what Paul is doing here. And it's not what anybody, it's not what everybody (laughs) um, may be doing if they talk the same way. But it just, I know I'm not the only pastor that feels this way. It feels because, look man, when was the last time you saw a news headline that said, um, pastor serves congregation faithfully for 50 years and then dies? That doesn't make the news. But when they steal money or get a girlfriend or whatever, and look, that stuff enrages me probably more than you, promise, okay? Like, if I still have anger issues, it's oftentimes around that. That's, that makes the vein come out right here, the one I got from my mama, okay? She's got it too. But it, the, the fact that you don't hear the stories of, of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of, of pastors giving their life to serve a group of people and doing it faithfully, that just doesn't, no, that doesn't make the news, Right? But what does make the news is all these other stories. So then to, 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 to unpack for you what this means, I, it, it, it puts, puts a lot of pastors, and I feel it too, like on our back foot. Like how do you not end up sounding like one of those guys? And so I'm telling you that's here, but I'm not gonna let that stop me from just unpacking what these verses are saying and telling it to you straight. Okay, so that's what's about to happen. You buckled up? Amen. Here's the reality of what Paul is saying. When he came and preached the gospel to these people at first, when he lived among them and sacrificed to plant a church there to teach them about Jesus, they loved him to the point they would have plucked out their eyes and given them to him if needed. That's that's what he says. But now, now they've strayed into this false teaching and started to believe lies that are going to hurt them. And it's gotten to the point they're treating him like an enemy for telling them the truth about it. And this is one of the really hard realities of answering the call to pastor and care for God's people. Because many times folks will go to great lengths to express how much they love you and they're with you. But when the time comes that you have to correct them or tell them that they're in error, they can end up treating you like an enemy. And if you've been with us through this book so far, you know Paul is using very direct and stern language to try to shake them out of this stupor they've fallen into. In chapter three, he said, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? We've read today, how is it that you can be here? I don't get it. That's that's the tone. I mean, in verse 20, he even says, I I wish I could change my tone. But this is serious. This is life and death. And so I got to talk to you like this. I wish, no, no sane person enjoys this, okay? But, but sometimes it's necessary. That's the reality that he's unpacking here. Hebrews 13, 17 says this. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so that they may do this with joy, not groaning for this would be unhelpful for you. I heard a preacher say once, it's not submission until you disagree. Before that, it's just agreement. 
I also want you to know that this is part of why a plural, we believe here at Love City Church a plurality of elders is really important, okay? Because nobody is above the need for submission in their life. Anybody can get tricked into believing something false and then sinning out of that belief, pastors included. And so that's part of why it's real important you have, you, what you don't have is, is a system where, in, in this case, as the founding pastor, I would, I would be the guy at the top I'm, I'm the kind of hired holy man and, and I'm the man of God, G-A-W-D, and, and like can't be questioned, right? Um, that's, that's, that's setting somebody up for disaster. So if you're not aware, maybe you haven't been around long enough yet to kind of understand the polity of how this is structured, I want you to understand something. You, you saw three elders stand up here today. If any either one of those elders, and it's not even necessarily just them. There's lots of leaders in this church where if they came to me and they said, Vince, I'm concerned. I think you're in sin in this matter. I think we need to, we need to talk about it and, and look at this. Just the fact that somebody loved me enough and had the guts to come say that to me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get quiet and I'm gonna listen very carefully. And if what happens is I bow up in defensiveness and get all prideful and decide, well, I am the man of God. How dare you question me? And throw some scriptures at him. If that's what happens and I am in sin or any of these other elders are in sin or any of these leaders are in sin and and we go the way of pride, we go the way of foolishness, anybody can be sat down and that includes me. It's written into the bylaws. That's the way this is structured. I've been in situations where that wasn't the case. And I have seen pastors lose their minds, basically, and start doing stuff that was going to be destructive and hurtful for the church. And the church had no recourse. There was nothing that could be done because he was the guy. And so when questioned, stood up and said, you know, Korah and all those guys got swallowed in the desert when they came up against Moses. Hold on, homie, you're not Moses. That's the first problem with this analogy. (laughs) Big problems, okay? So I just want you to understand that as, (laughs) even as back foot as I feel and and how hard it can be in the current cultural landscape and with how many charlatans have been brought into the light, how hard it can be for me to preach verse 16 to you and to unpack what that really means and for it to sound like I'm trying to establish some kind of authority where I can control you, I don't want to control you. I have no desire to do that. But I, I want to shepherd you as an under-shepherd in submission to Christ. And I am not out of, nobody here is out of the need to be submitted to somebody. Everybody needs people in their life that if they check them, the very fact that they love them enough to come and do that, if you, if you would be tempted towards pride and defensiveness... You shouldn't be. Like, just think about it. If someone loves you enough to come, like, hey, man, I have this concern, right off rip, as Christians, we should understand, man, that's somebody that probably loves me. Because conflict isn't fun. No one wants to, no one's like, ooh, I can't wait to have that conversation. Right? No. (laughs) Unless there's something wrong with you, you know what I mean? And we'll figure that out and deal with that if it comes, right? Like, you like conflict too much. That's a problem. Okay, but what does all this really mean? Here's bottom, let me bottom line it. I want you to prayerfully think about the day we may have to tell you that you're wrong. 
Will that hold weight because you believe God establishes spiritual authority in the church for that purpose? How would you react if we had to tell you you're acting like a fool? I want you to think about that. Get ready for it because it might happen. Me? Yes, you. If, if I'm, this is real serious. If you're sitting there thinking, there's no, there's no way I could, they could ever need to say that to me, you're in serious trouble. Repent today. Even if you don't get it yet, just, just please listen to me. That's wrong. That's fool-ish. And it's dangerous. If there is some reason you don't trust the elders here or other leaders here to put you in check if needed, then I want you to come talk to us and let's see if we can work through it. If we can't, then you probably need to find a group of elders you can trust to have that kind of authority in your life because you need it. And make sure, make sure though, the problem isn't that you actually just won't submit to any spiritual authority because you somehow think you're above the need for it. That is unbiblical and it's a super dangerous place to be. Okay? Yeah, that was about as fun to preach as I thought it would be. Not. Let me say this. There's, there's been many times that, that I have had to get into these situations and I've seen the glorious grace of God in people responding well. There's, there's also been times that that's not happened. And um, I also want you to know that anytime something like this comes up in the scriptures, we're just preaching through Galatians, okay? So if, if you're sitting out there thinking, oh man, he's talking about me. Listen, we're just working through Galatians. I, the, the text has been set by the rhythm since we started this series. We're here today, okay? So, I mean, if it applies, if the shoe fits, wear it, great. <laughs> you know what I mean? But as a, gen, as, as a principle, as a rule, I have a high conviction. I don't ever like look at the events of, of what's happening in a given week and then come in here and target people from the pulpit. I, I don't believe that's right. And so that's not ever what's happening. All right? Amen. Does that matter? It does, even if you don't understand why. Uh, come talk to me if you don't. All right? It's important. You shouldn't do that. That would be another weird form of manipulation and not godly. So we're not doing that. Amen. Let's go to verse 19. What's verse 19 say? Well, yes, this is much better. My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, until Christ is formed in you, until Christ is formed in you. This ties back to verse seven in this way. Only as the nature of Christ is formed in us, and we're conformed more and more into his image, will we truly understand what it means for us to be heirs? Okay? I, I, I talked to you about one element of the echo of verse seven and, and how it, it, there's that echo of the, the story of the prodigal son, as it's often called, but really, and, and I want to credit Tim Keller, he's the first I heard say this, and it was revolutionary for me, really that parable should be called the prodigal sons because there was another son, the son that came home and there was a celebration, there was another son who had been there the whole time, faithfully serving the father and doing everything he was supposed to do. And when the party for the son that had been out wasting all his dad's inheritance and, and being a fool, when the party was thrown for him, he's salty and he won't, he's outside not celebrating with the family. 
over the brother that had returned. And the father goes out and he's like, you know, what's going on? He's like, dad, you know, I've been here the whole time. I've been doing what I'm supposed to do. You've never killed, you never offered me a, a, a goat or a fattened calf so I can celebrate with my friends. And here we are, the one who ravaged our household, the one who sinned greatly. We're doing that for him. I don't get it. I don't understand. And here's what it shows us. Talking about what it means to truly be heirs. The issue with both of those sons was that they misunderstood the most important part of being their father's son. They misunderstood what the most important part of being their father's son was. Both of them, unfortunately, were focused on inheriting his stuff. They just went at it different ways. The first son through rebellion, the second son through obedience. But they both missed the fact that the true treasure was their relationship with their father. And they were prodigals in different ways. And that's what we see. We need, we need Christ formed in us because gospel maturity means growing beyond being a spiritual gold digger or thinking that God is a sugar daddy. Through God, get this, that's what verse seven is telling us. Through God, we become heirs of God. The great treasure, what does it mean to be an heir of God? What do we got coming to us? Now that we've been adopted as sons and we get all that Christ had, what is the crown jewel of all of that treasure? It's the relationship that Christ had with the Father. Now we get it. Now we get the same relationship. And it's the one thing that matters most. Are there other blessings that come? Sure. But they barely hit the radar compared to the great one, the pearl of great price. That through God, we become heirs of God. We get him. That's the great treasure. It's the one thing worth us trading everything we once held dear in order to have. And in coming to this place, we're only reflecting that the incomparable love of Jesus is being formed in us. How do I see that? Because he saw us as this precious and worth giving everything to have first. We are just learning to love him the way he's already loved us. That's what it means to grow in Christ-like maturity, to grow and mature as sons and daughters of God, to stop living like slaves. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, thank you uh, for Galatians 4, 1 through 20. Um, I thank you. I thank you for Paul's love-motivated boldness. I thank you, Lord, that it's clear he loves these people because he is speaking truth and not holding back. God, help each of us. Each of us, Lord, are prone to defensiveness. None of us is perfectly humble. Any of us, when, when confronted about something we're believing or doing or saying, all of us are gonna have that temptation to defensiveness and not first feeling loved by the fact that someone's willing to tell us the truth. Please help us with that. Please humble us.
We know that we need the continued work of your spirit for that. We know that this kind of humility, it's part of the maturity of being sons and daughters. And we know that with all of that comes freedom, freedom that you've always intended us to have and that you rejoice in giving us. Help us walk in it for your glory, Master. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.